Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, a podcast devoted to all things RPGs. I am your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. I am so glad you're back because uh, responsibility is just <laughs> makes me lock up. I'm really sorry to everyone. We uploaded a really large file last week because I was in charge. And a lot of people said, um, are you going to upload like a gig every single time now? Is this a new thing? Like, no, 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 no. Don't worry. We're going back to yeah. the old ways. I asked Eric to send me the file that they uploaded. I was like, wait a minute. This is 1.6 gigs. Did you upload that? And then surprise, surprise, our, our audio files like were completely like, yeah, you just uh, uploaded your maximum out for the next six months. <laughs> the next six yeah, I actually, he gave me the file as, I think it was an AIFF, maybe a wave, and I tried uploading both, and they told me, nope. So I went to my Dropbox, and I downloaded it, uploaded it from there, and it was still, I was just like, this doesn't feel right. You know how you're doing something, and you're like, this doesn't feel right? That's how I felt, but I was like, okay, well, I gotta get it up, gotta get it done. I should have bothered um, Eric, because all I really had to do was make the file an MP3. It's We usually distribute MP3s, right? Yes, we do. (laughs) More like 100 megs rather than 1.6 gigs. (laughs) Whoopsie doodle. There's one solution to this, Nadia. Never take a vacation again. (laughs) I have eliminated Cat's desire to take a vacation ever again. (laughs) Although, you know what? We actually, like for PAX last year, when you went to Burning Man, like we really held down the fort all right and you were nowhere near any sort of internet connection. We did okay. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Man, that was a lot of fun, actually, not being on the internet for a solid week. That sounds like it would be really nice right now. You were like, yeah, we went to this Polish party. I'm like, why didn't you invite me to this? They're like, well, you were in the middle of the desert. I'm like, oh, yeah, (laughs) on my spirit quest. You were having your spirit vision. That's okay. I didn't get invited either. I was kind of mad at Eric and and Mike. Like, you went to the Polish party without me, and I just sat in the (laughs) hotel with him at a pool. Nadio, no way. They didn't invite you? Come on. Well, I don't know if they had an invitation for me. They promised me that this year I'd get an invitation, but whoops. 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 Anyway, we got a lot to cover in this episode, Nadia. We got a lot of RPG news. A bunch of RPGs have just come out, and we have been playing them. And also, we're going to be talking about Moon, the Mm -hmm. anti-RPG. If you want to follow me on social media, I'm at the underscore capout, and I'm on Twitch at CatBaileyTV, streaming every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Nadia is on Twitter at Nadia Oxford. And, of course, we have a newsletter that comes out every single Wednesday. Nadia, what was the topic of the newsletter this week? I actually talked a bit about um, what age I started playing RPGs and video games in general because there was a, a bit of controversy on Twitter, surprise, surprise, where there was an old quote from D&D creator Gary Gygax and there was someone else who worked on D&D, I can't remember his name, but they were basically suggesting, well, saying that women don't like RPGs, particularly D&D, uh, because they're not biologically programmed to like that kind of stuff, like warriors and, and fighting, and whereas men are all about like you know, the war and the fighting, and I just thought that was utter, complete, total nonsense. And I'm not just saying that as a, a girl who's never, ever been girly, but I did say, and I did point out, Women go where they are welcome, and that's all there is to it. When I was younger, I mean, almost all my women friends, like from all sorts of social groups, played video games to varying degrees. Like, I would go to sleepover. There'd always be Nintendo. We'd always be playing. We'd rent Sonic 2, and we'd we'd finish that overnight. But 
that was when we were kind of in our own little bubble and we could kind of talk about this stuff amongst each other and have fun. As I grew up, I noticed as, as someone who was extremely enthusiastic about Nintendo and fantasy and, and all that stuff, guys didn't really want to hear you talk about that stuff. They would, not all guys, of course, you know, hashtag not all men. Some were very cool about it, but a lot just kind of would give you a weird side eye if you if you talked about this sort of thing because why are you talking about it? You should be into like, you know, fashion and boys and, and trashy TV and don't really want to talk about this sort of thing with the girls. It's very strange. So I, I'm not like saying, oh, guys don't like to hear girls talk about RPGs ever. I'm just saying that it's if if women are in an, uh, in an environment, say with each other, where they like to talk about this sort of thing and like to play with each other and just kind of communicate without any sort of cultural barrier. Sure, there's tons of evidence that women like RPGs and D&D, and it has nothing to do with biology. It's just a weird thing to say. Yeah, as I've gotten older, I've kind of seen that a lot of gender roles are complete nonsense. Um, I knew more than my share of women growing up who were incredibly aggressive and would basically cave your face in, and I met a lot of guys who were very sweet and very sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. And there are guys who like super intellectual games or women I know who are super into shooters. I mean, Tina Sanchez over uh, at Sony Santa Monica, I mean, she got a job at Infinity Ward because she was one of the biggest Call of Duty fans around. Katie's a huge Call of Duty fan. Katie is amazing at Call of Duty and shooting games in general. And she's just like a very, from my experience, a very feminine sort of uh, woman. But uh, she loves... Call of Duty. She loves shooting games, and she could. Mm-hmm. Whereas me, again, I'm not. A, I'm not a girly girl in the least, but I don't like shooting games that much. So it's just strange to say, oh, women like this and men like this. It's never that easy. Never, never, never. Yeah, I always get really irritated when I see any people making sweeping generalizations about what women are like or what men are like. It's like it's it's all nonsense. It's just whoever you are, case by case basis, right? Yeah, like like Popeye says, I am what I am. All right, so go ahead and subscribe to the newsletter over on the website. It comes out every single Wednesday. It has a little essay from Nadia, and it has all of the RPG headlines uh, of the week. And if you're enjoying the podcast, make sure to drop us a review over on the iTunes. It helps the visibility of the podcast, and it makes us feel good because we put a lot of work into this podcast. And, and you know, positive feedback. It's a good we thing, do. right? Yeah, and it, it's, it's good because we have... Stressful days where we upload the wrong file <laughs> and make everyone freak out. So so when you're patient with us, we were very, very grateful, and we appreciate all your positive feedback. All right, Nadia, let's continue on to RPG News. First item of RPG News business, there was Jeff Keighley's never-ending Gamescom <laughs> super event that went like five and a half hours or something like that. At least it felt like five and a half hours. Yeah, God bless Jeff Keighley. He works he works very hard, as harder than anyone I know in the and industry. He cares so much. He cares so much. Every pore of his body is seeping enthusiasm for this cursed industry. For marketing. For marketing. <laughs> but as I said on our Slack, our company Slack, I feel like this long extended every like week we're tuning into something he's doing and i feel like he's the kid from a good day the twilight zone slash short story where we all have to kind of watch what he's doing and applaud him or we'll be sent to the cornfield oh is that how it is (laughs) i'm telling you that's how it is 
Jeff Keeley's going to send us all to the cornfield if we don't pay attention to his his shows. My favorite part was when, you know, uh, they got Doc Brown on from Back to the Future. And he was like, what? It's Doc Brown coming from the future <laughs> to tell us about Surgeon Simulator for some reason. A game that's wholly unconnected to Back to the Future. Hi, Doc. Can you do something about 2020? Things are really bad here right now. Can you give us Can you give us a vaccine? We would really appreciate a vaccine right about now. That was such a a, a tone-deaf, stupid segment. And I love Christopher Lloyd, like like mm. anything, but that was so pointless. I was like, oh, cool, we're, we're getting a Back to the Future game. No, we're getting a Surgeon Simulator. Okay, whatever. You would think that Christopher Lloyd would be making off enough off Star Trek and Back to the Future residuals that he'd be able to not have to go on Jeff Keighley's uh, particular show pretending to be Doc Brown, a character who came around 35 years ago. Yeah, he's uh, he's getting a, a bit up there to be doing He's getting the up part. there in age. Yeah. So that was, a, that was a little bit of a weird diversion. It reminds me of uh, when 2015 happened and they were supposedly coming to the future. And they did a Jimmy Kimmel bit where they had the, the DeLorean and they had Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. And they were both looking very old. Yeah, I, I kind of feel icky when celebrities do that because they look old and I realize I'm old and you're too old. <laughs> we're all too old to be pretending right now. Well, that's not true. We can always pretend, but it, it makes me feel awkward. And of course, the kids are like, who's this? What is going on? I don't care. I don't know. Back to the Future is still popular. That's true. I wonder, like, I don't have any kids, so I just wonder if, like, people show their kids the movies and whether or not the kids like them. So, yeah, Dragon Age 4 was shown during this event. It Kinda. was a nice little kind of reel of Bioware. Bioware saying, hi, we're still here. We're okay. Mm-hmm. Please okay, pay guys. no attention to the smoldering tire fire that is Anthem over there. <laughs> Everything is hunky-dory. We're making RPGs. Dragon Age 4 is a thing. We're showing some concept art. Uh, Nadia, did you have? Did you ever even play Dragon Age? I played the first one, and I was just—I okay. think I stopped, and I was like, "Yeah, fun, great." Dragon Age Inquisition is weirdly underrated. Is that the one that Eric is constantly standing for? No, he's constantly standing for Dragon Age Two, a game that is not good. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, we all have our one that we stand for, even if it's bad. Yeah. Anyway, so they showed a bunch of concept art. They showed Solus, who is one of the main overarching villains, the Dread Wolf, who has been heavily teased to be one of the main villains of Dragon Age 4. <clears throat> the fact that they were only showing concept art maybe shows how early in development this game still is. It might yeah. be another, like, three years. <laughs> I definitely got that impression because they're still doing uh, mocap. They're still doing concept art and i feel like if they had gameplay to show us they absolutely would have shown us something could be it's just very early in development they don't want to show us something really rough but uh the point is they were there to say hey dragon age is still alive don't freak out you'll have your game someday it's also possible that they have only so much bandwidth with the pandemic and everything and having absolutely home yeah uh like we covered in the last episode i do not begrudge any studio who has to delay things and uh, a lot of studios are delaying things. I actually read an article in Kotaku today asking, you know, hey, it's about time we just delay the next generation. Make it next year, make it whatever. But nobody's excited for it right now. Nobody can really muster up the energy to to care about it. And so many of these games that are supposed to come out alongside these consoles are getting pushed into next year anyway. It's just such a weird time of unrest and sickness that I 
every day I wake up and so I would, like everyone else and wonder what's going on, what's going to happen to us. So I'm not thinking about the PlayStation 5 very hard. All right. <laughs> and on that note, let's talk about Bioware. Yay! Know. When I look at Bioware, I wonder what their niche is anymore because mm -hmm. they're still a beloved studio for sure. But when you compare it to where they were at the beginning of the generation, where they were one of the foremost RPG studios for sure, uh, CD Projekt has taken the kind of Mass Effect slot and Larian has come in and literally they're making Baldur's Gate 3. So Bioware is like, okay, well, we've had the, usurp the, the hardcore niche usurped and done better by Larian. And we've had the more casual, action-oriented RPG usurped by CD Projekt and done better. So who are we? Where are we? What do we do? We are fixing Anthem and kind of in the beginnings of Dragon Age. And that's probably the best they can do for now. I think Dragon Age, though, it's like, I guess it could sell well just on the back of name recognition and people like RPGs and all of that stuff. But when I look at a game like... The Witcher, you know, yeah. it's kind of got the fantasy element on lock. So does Baldur's Gate. So does Divinity Original Sin. Uh, I think they would have a better shot with Mass Effect whenever that comes out. They definitely have a chance to redeem Mass Effect. And they definitely have been kind of scattered to the winds in terms of their niches. But there's still a lot of value in the Bioware name. And I feel like if they have a chance to really prove themselves, let's say Dragon Age 4 comes out pretty good or really good. Uh, people will start talking again. People will give it a chance. All right, continuing on. There was also a kind of impromptu Nintendo Direct Mini, which left a lot of people feeling very salty because it's getting kind of ridiculous at this point that Nintendo hasn't basically released anything this uh, this particular year. Yes. And one of the things that was announced during this impromptu Direct was Collection of Saga for the Nintendo Switch, which looks like a pretty shoddy port sadly yeah that was a bit of a surprise and when i saw it i thought oh cool like some remakes would be really awesome but no these are the original games there are certain things to help you get through it like screen magnification apparently according to the main page um speed up but it's very much just the games uh the trailer only even mentions in terms of new content a new a new orchestrated uh, song, not even a soundtrack, just a, a single new song that they're putting into the game for the anniversary of the series. And it is kind of a shame because Final Fantasy Legends slash Saga, they're trying very hard to make Saga a thing in the West, but the Game Boy games, they're, they're kind of archaic. I would at very least hope that they would put a new translation in, but at least for the first game especially, but I'm not seeing any evidence that they're doing anything other than releasing the straight games, and it's a, it's a choice they're making. Frank Cifaldi was being quite harsh on them on Twitter, <laughs> saying, nice. As Frank Cifaldi, if you're not familiar with him, used to work at 1UP, nowadays runs the Video Game History Foundation. It's so painfully obvious that they didn't bring back M2 for this one, which is a shame. Mm. The Mana Collection was beautiful. There's just no comparison. M2 had this optional screen filler filter, and the border was original art that was themed to the game. The Saga product has a decent palette. Game Boy should be low contrast, not pure black and white. But this weird smartphone border with buttons on screen? Yeah, what the hell was that? And somebody came in and said, yeah, they just took the border from another smartphone game and swapped out the game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Square Enix. You, you you just blow my mind sometimes. I, I, I love and hate you so much. 
Square Enix is so hit and miss in the way that they treat their classic games. One minute yes. they're releasing the the Saga or the Mana Collection, which is genuinely great, and the next they're releasing a really horrible Chrono Trigger PC port. It really makes me sad when companies they they kind of take a, a chance on a collection. They're like, oh sure, let's just make some cheap, easy cash here. And they hire, say, M2 or Digital Eclipse, who do a really great job with the collections. And then they realize, oh, we can save money by just firing the middleman and doing this all ourselves internally. As if a collection is just a, a simple port of ROMs, which it can be, absolutely. But M2 and Digital Eclipse are, are known for doing exceptionally good jobs with their ports. I mean, Disney Afternoon Collection is still fantastic. Uh... The first Mega Man Legacy collection, I believe, of Digital Eclipse did that, and they did a, a really amazing job with it. And then Capcom took over for the subsequent collections, which are fine, but they're not, they don't have that flair that Digital Eclipse gave them. So, yeah, I think companies in general, especially big companies, are very hit and miss with their retro properties because they don't always treat them with the respect that they deserve. They just treat them like cheap, easy cash-ins, and Square Enix is so bad about that. That Chrono Trigger port was a sin. It was just a sin. Among other things that were also, uh, well, rumored to be, as long as we're talking about Nintendo, is an upgraded Switch model apparently coming next year. And now the, the rumor is, well, the reason that we're not getting anything from 2020 is that Nintendo is holding everything back mm. for the Switch Pro coming out next year where they're basically going to have another uh, basically a relaunch compete a little more uh directly with the ps5 and the xbox series x nadia would you buy a switch pro totally depends what's on it and how it performs because going back to the nintendo 3ds uh was the new nintendo 3ds that was it which had that port of xenoblade chronicles which was not great um, but it did actually come in, all that power came in a little bit handy when you were doing other games like Majora's Mask uh, 3D run, ran really, really well on the um, the new 3DS. Uh, but I have my Switch Lite and my original Switch, and I'm very happy with them. Uh, so if, if there is something that Nintendo can say about this Switch Pro that makes me say, okay, I need this, then I'll, I'll grab it, absolutely. But... I don't know what they could really say or do. Like, if if they said, like, for example, okay, here's Breath of the Wild 2, and it's only going to run on the new Switch, I'd probably get That would be insane. Off. That would be stupid. <laughs> I'd be That angry. would be completely ridiculous. They would not do that. Yeah, but. exactly. So we have to see what it's going to be like. Like, it's doing fine not competing with the PS4 or the Xbox right now, uh, but I guess it is getting kind of behind in power, so I see why they're possibly going for this, but... I had heard that they're delaying things because they don't want to compete with the new la the launches of the new systems. But I guess either. But they're or not going to have anything. Yeah, that's. I can't believe they're going to have nothing. It just does not compute with me. I mean, well, I, unless I, you count Pikmin. Yeah, Is that coming out this year? I think so. I think October. I'm not the hugest Pikmin. Or do they get pushed to next year? I hope yeah. not. Either way, like. There's a rumor of the Super Mario 3D Anniversary Collection or Super Mario 3D All-Stars. That's not going to cut it. I don't know. It depends how, how good it is. If you give me like a, a really good reason to play Galaxy again, I will absolutely play Galaxy again. And I am intrigued by the idea of going through uh, Super Mario 64 with a 
better controls because I still think that game holds up. Let's talk a bit about the RPGs that we've been playing. There have been a bunch of them lately, Nadia. First things first, Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, you were playing it kind of for review, but it was a bit of a, a messy situation because they made a very odd decision with this one, Nadia. They did. Um, Crystal Chronicles, of course, as you recall, is a game about teaming up with three other friends on the GameCube. We needed four Game Boy Advances, four Link Cables, and a GameCube. In other words, nobody played the game. But the people who did play the game actually enjoyed it very much. It's a, it's a very good co-op couch game, which Square Enix decided was not going to have co couch co-op for the remake. And it's just a baffling decision because you can only play online with other people. You can only play together in dungeons, so you can't explore the rest of the world together. And there's a really convoluted friend code system where friend codes expire in half an hour. And it's just kind of a mess and the fact that it doesn't have couch co-op is really really a bummer because let's face it these servers are going to be dead within a couple of months and i would not mind actually just kind of sitting beside my husband and saying hey let's play crystal chronicles because it is a very charming very very whimsical rpg with a really intriguing premise and the action is a it's kind of uh, ancient in this day and age it's it's very slow and the load times in the remake are, are unforgivably slow. I don't know what's with that. But at its heart, it's still a, a satisfying little action RPG that could be fun with other players. But you can't really play with other players. So what the hell? They single-handedly ruined it by not making it locally playable. Because I could, I could see passing a fun evening yeah. with some friends playing... I mean, the point of Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles was that the original game... It was kind of inaccessible because it needed everybody to have a GBA, which was kind of stupid. But this time around, everybody could just be playing on Switch, right? You could just be hanging out in the living room and having a good time. But you can't do that. You got to be online. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it's very, very silly. And it's a shame because I love this little world. I love how charming and whimsical it is. I love the narration that happens every time you enter a dungeon. It kind of tells you a little story about the world and the area. I actually really love the opening. Uh, that Crystal Chronicles the theme song is one of my favorite video game songs. I think it's just really, really nice. Uh, but they kind of missed the whole point of the game. It's really odd. A really weird decision. Yeah, it's too bad that they wouldn't have local multiplayer. That makes it kind of a miss in my book. Yeah, um, I, I really hate to say it, but it's like if you want to play a good multiplayer action RPG, Diablo 3 is right there. If you want to play a good single-player uh, action RPG that moves quickly and is generally quite fun, Trials of Mana is right there. So Crystal Chronicles is just this, well, it's it's extremely cute, it's extremely has a lot of character, but other than that, it's like, it, it's missing something vital because of that, that multiplayer component. It's a, it's a weird curiosity, isn't it? It is very much a curiosity, and I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of sad that they blew this one. They didn't have to blow it, and they did. All right. Well, I, on the other hand, am currently playing Wasteland 3, Nadia, which it should be out now as of the launch of this podcast. I am about 10 hours in. And so it's been getting very good reviews and mm -hmm. I can see why. It's think Fallout with squad-based combat meets XCOM. Oh, that's kind of cool. Uh, there was a trailer for Wasteland 3 during uh, Jeff Keighley's Donkey Show, and it was uh, it looked pretty it looked pretty cool, like pretty dark and and brooding in a in a really fascinating way. It's very cold 
because it takes place in Colorado during the winter. So it's <laughs> constant winter. <laughs> That's one thing I remember about the stand as they were talking about them. They were all in Colorado and talking about the snow moving in by September. I'm like, God, oh, geez, I live in Canada and that's a, that's terrible. So when you're creating your characters, you can pick a bunch of pre-generated characters. Like you can kind of go Last of Us with a mother with a father and daughter combination. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can pick weird science lovers. <laughs> <laughs> I like them. I, I, I ship them already. Or you can pick um, two uh, mercs, these two women who are mercs. That, that was the one that I picked. Because mm-hmm. I, I didn't feel like, or you can roll your own characters and just have them be there. But I didn't feel like there were enough options to make creating my own customized character like worthwhile. Right. I was having the the character. The one thing I don't like about Wasteland Three is that the characters are kind of ugly. Oh, yeah. They they did look kind of like snarly and and ugly in the in the trailer. Yeah, they're hu- kind of hunched over. They look like weird apes. They're like misshapen. Well, Strange. if they're not, if they're in Colorado, they're probably not getting enough vitamin D. There's eternal <laughs> winter up there. I, I cranked it up to ultra, and it runs really well on my PC. But I kept hoping that the character models would get better, and they never did. <laughs> well, the water looks good, and the leaves look fantastic, and my characters yeah. still look like mutated apes. The environmental art is really good for the most part, but the art can also be extremely variable to the point where I was kind of wondering if there there was something wrong with my PC. <laughs> and then you realize, oh no, it's the game. But the actual game, like the actual combat is pretty fun well, when you get into it. I had a huge fight around this fortress, I guess you could say. And you're crouching behind cover. You're using a variety of different weapons. Uh, characters get super attacks uh, when they strike enemies. My main character has a heavy machine gun and a rocket launcher and rocket launchers are kind of ridiculous they do a ton of damage <laughs> i would when i think rocket launcher i think yeah a ton of damage you think back to like doom where the first rocket launcher would blow up in your face and destroy you if you weren't careful when it comes to the rocket launcher i was relying on it quite heavily and then also she has a tactical nuke strike that will irradiate them so it's good cool. stuff and the actual particle particle effects can be good and if you happen to be out in the wasteland driving around in the overworld, um, have you ever seen The Shining? Yes. You remember the bit toward the end when he's driving back up to the Overlook Hotel? Um, the, 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 the character is going to go and rescue them and then gets the axe in the oh, face. Dan, what's his face? Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. That's cool. Yeah. Where you're driving around in this heavily armored snow crawler. And it has a, a a cannon on top, and if you get into a random battle against an enemy, you can actually have it come in and help you. That's pretty cool. That's what the shining needed—a cannon on top of the car. <laughs> and you can get various abilities like weird science and sneaky shit and nerd shit. That's literally what it says. <laughs> Those are your abilities. That sounds very specific, but very vague at the same time. It has a rocket launcher that fires frozen ferrets for some reason. Okay. This game yep. is not as serious as it looked in the trailer. It can it's can be serious, but it has a real Fallout vibe. And wow. it's kind of a weird situation because Wasteland came before Fallout. And right. it has direct lineage to Fallout. But Fallout is so, so ubiquitous and so established that it's kind of like, okay, well, it seems like Wasteland 3 is cribbing from Fallout, even though it's the opposite of this is true. Like, Wasteland came up with all of this stuff. Right, so... Uh, it's one of those situations, which uh, which tends to happen sometimes in video games. 
I fought a clown gang who are dentists as well for some reason. <laughs> that sounds like two terrible nightmares packed into one package. I walked in and he was doing pulling teeth out of a corpse and yeah. was like, oh, I'm good to get you next. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not. Um, <laughs> no, I'm done. Nope. <laughs> and they were initially killing me. So what I did was I sent in one character to talk to them and then I had them bolt back out to draw everybody out of the area where that was kind of fortified. And I had everybody set to ambush. So as they came out one at a time, they just got filled with bullets and died. And as they were packed into the garage area, I was able to hit them with a rocket launcher. And well, that was all that she wrote. I I love the fact that I'm just getting this vision. You know how clowns come out of a car one at a time. And (laughs) it's like they're coming out of the garage one at a time. You hear the circus music. That's pretty great. I think the thing is with Wasteland 3... Is that while I'm enjoying it, I don't feel like I've done a lot of role-playing or actual heavy lifting when it comes to the story. Um, You can side with various factions, that kind of thing. Uh, Initially, when you're in Colorado Springs, you're interacting a lot with um, Marshall Daisy, I think her name is. And she is kind of, she's a very law and order type to the point that she puts uh, criminals in the pillories and basically lets them freeze to death. Ooh, that's pretty terrible. Yeah, but I've been mostly siding with her because her name's Daisy, and I figure that she's okay. Hi, I'm Daisy. <laughs> she seems all right. She seems pretty no-nonsense. No I'm like, yeah, I like she you. She seems pretty good about putting criminals and letting them freeze it. <laughs> That's uh, brutal. There's an entire side scene quest where you, I don't know, if it's actually more of a main quest, but there's a whole bit where you're in a casino and you're dealing with gangsters, and I feel like I've done that particular quest about a billion times. So. Yeah, I you know what? In terms of places in games, I feel and set pieces, I feel like I'm so done with casinos, like I'm done with zombies. Uh, I will make an exception for Persona Five uh, Casino because that place was wild. Yeah, the casino brothel. I was like, yes. yeah, been there, done that. It's like, yeah. oh look, you can have sex with them with oh, a goat that's... for some reason. You <laughs> is this wasteland? You can have sex with a goat. Yeah sure you open a door and a goat's like trotting around and it has a sign that says like ten dollars and you're like uh (laughs) slowly close the door i think no (laughs) so that was a memorable moment i suppose but um and then they the the gangster leader goes all scarface and you have to fight him but what but i've slowly been surely been figuring out the battle system and it's fairly complicated and fun um and full of explodey bits so yeah, it sounds like you're having fun with the game so far. What more could you ask for? Yeah, I've been getting more into it. I'm kind of waiting to get into the real meat of it because the main story, as far as I can tell, is that there's a patriarch of Colorado and his three shitty sons or, <laughs> and maybe one daughter are out and, out and about on the loose. And the daughter is maybe the main villain. And I expect that maybe you can side with her if you want and take down the patriarch or something like that. I don't know. You should but. do that. You should take down the patriarch and the three shitty sons. That sounds like a, a, a fairy book, a fairy tale. The patriarch it's a little bit of a Far Cry 5 sons. vibe going on where you're also having to take down a family member. So, yeah. 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 I kind of got bored with Far Cry 5 very quickly. But uh, there was an exploding pig. It's an it's an interesting game. It's an interesting RPG. It definitely does not sound boring. It's not boring. No. Good. Uh, like I'm good. digging it. Yeah. I'm slowly but surely getting more and more equipment. I think my favorite character is Dusty, who is one of the two mercenaries that you start out with, who is now walking around in super heavy armor and has the 
kick-ass ability where she basically yells at everybody and they get really intimidated and back down. So. <laughs> like a war like shout. So I think we're going to do a proper review of Wasteland 3 next week uh, when I get some time to play it more. It's like an 80-hour RPG, so it's not short. Yeah. All right, Nadia, let's continue on to the main topic, which is Moon, the anti-RPG. Don't go away. Nadia, I have a question. Mm. When was the first time you ever heard of Moon? God, you know what? It's one of those things where you kind of hear about it and you store it in the back of your head for ages and ages and you totally forget about it. And then you hear about it again and you're like, oh, right. Yeah, that's a thing I should pay attention to. And that has been the case with the localization of Moon that just arrived. I think the first time I ever heard of Moon was when Toby Fox mentioned it is an inspiration for Undertale. Yes, um, I somehow missed that. That was a tweet he made back in 2017, and I missed it somehow. But yes, as we will soon go into, the two games have very much in common. Moon was one of those RPGs that kind of seemed to be lost to history. It was billed as an anti-RPG. It was released uh, in 1997 for the Sony PlayStation. It was only ever released in Japan. It never came over here, despite the RPG boom that was happening in the Mm -hmm. U.S. at the time. Uh, There was fan translations at various points, but they never really came off. So to suddenly have the announcement that it was not only coming out again, but it was actually being released in English was a huge freaking deal. Yes, that was a big surprise. That was one of those games you think, well, because there's still some games that exist that are lost gems, and you figure I'll never get to play them, and that turns out to be the case. But... Yeah, Moon, um, there were fan translations that just kind of fell through, so this is finally our chance to play the game fresh for the first time, and it's quite exciting. I really like when stuff like this happens. It's very, very good. It's a good thing. The Holy Grail, all the Holy Grails are finally coming out. Seiken Densetsu 3 got an official release in English. Now we just gotta wait for Terranigma, Nadia. Terranigma and Panzer Dragoon. And I would not mind seeing illusion of anything by Quintet. I want everywhere. I want it on every billboard in the world. So Moon was designed by Kenichi Nishi, who worked on Super Mario RPG and Chrono Trigger as a map data coordinator and field planner, respectively. And it was written by Yoshiro Kimura. And its distinctive art was by Kazuyuki Kurishima. And the basic premise, Nadia, is that you're a kid who is playing an RPG one day. And you get sent to bed, and then suddenly you're dreaming that you're in this world. You're in this RPG world, and there's a hero. You are not the hero, though. The hero is running around screwing things up, (laughs) killing monsters (laughs) and breaking into people's houses and generally making a mess of things, and you are cleaning up after the hero. I think a better word than the anti-RPG would be to say that it is a send-up of all things RPGs. It is an affectionate parody. It really is, um, because the game's creators have outright said they were just kind of wondering about, you know, the heroes. When you're a hero in an RPG, you go into people's houses, you you take their stuff, like Dragon Quest comes to mind. I always shuffle through drawers, because that's where you find the mini medals are very valuable. Link, of course, he's not an RPG hero, but he is infamous for just smashing everything up and getting hearts. Um, 
we do kind of tend to slay monsters indiscriminately. Say we're grinding, for example, all these monsters aren't bothering us. We just we're, we're out there spoiling for a fight, and they're just like, "Oh no, I'm gonna I'm gonna die now," and they die. So that is the basis behind Moon, just kind of seeing the actions of you as a hero, quote unquote, from the other side. And what also makes Moon very interesting to me is that a lot of RPGs at the time had very cookie-cutter NPCs who would just kind of stand there and say nothing as you trash their homes. But Moon is all about meeting these NPCs, forming bonds with them, kind of getting, even getting into their hobbies, because some of them are into music, some are into flying planes. They adhere to their own schedules, and you got to kind of figure out what those schedules are and interact in the day or the night, depending so it's not a game about fighting. In fact, when the hero fights an enemy and kills it, you have to restore their soul and let them pass on to another life or whatever the, the twist is there. It's really just about kind of making you think about what you do in an RPG. And you're right, I guess calling it kind of a send-up or a parody is a good is a good word to use. Yeah, most of the staff came from Konami and Square at that time. And if you think back to 1997, 1996, at that point, RPGs, as we know, console RPGs in the Japanese style, had been around for about 10 years. I think the original Dragon Quest came out in 1986. We had played Chrono Trigger. We had had many Final Fantasies. We were up to Final Fantasy VI and Dragon Quest VI and all of that. And I think it's natural after, you know, 10 years of making these various RPGs, that you sit back and you start looking at the more absurd elements of that particular genre, and you kind of naturally want to either break away from them or gently lampoon them, right? Yeah, I mean, even as a kid, when I would play, like, Dragon Quest, I'd wonder about the monsters I was killing and, you know, the NPCs that I would talk to, and, hey, don't you say anything else, don't you go anywhere? So I can totally understand why adults who grew up making these games would say, hey, um, let's do a send-up. Let's kind of look at the world through their eyes and see what we can come up with. And by all rights, apparently, I haven't played it yet, but Moon is a, even though it was did not make a huge impact at the time, it has become a cult classic for a reason. This is what Kimura said of Moon. Making Moon was like being an indie we had a lot of freedom to make what we wanted. Looking back on it, it was like a music band improvising. Even if the result was slightly different from what we would expect, we'd adapt and go with it anyway. Which they said was kind of a hellish way to make an RPG or a video <laughs> game in general. But uh, it, they were riffing, you know. They were established designers having a good time. And it's definitely reflected in what came out of Moon. Yeah, they were definitely doing their own thing, having a good time. His comment about it being an indie game actually intrigues me a bit because I think about indie games now and how how common they are and how many tools indie developers have at their disposal to make, you know, games that are a little different, have strange ideas like you see in a game like Moon. Uh, of course, Undertale being an excellent example. Uh, Toby Fox did not play Moon in Japanese, but he did uh, the, the concept alone, the concept of, of helping monsters and becoming friends with them that inspired him to make Undertale which he made, I think, with Game Maker. Developers at the time did not have those kinds of shortcuts. They just had to kind of go the long way around to make their vision realized. And they were taking a, a big, big chance and putting a lot of effort into this chance. And I appreciate that very much. Not only had RPGs been around 10 years at that point, there was still a little bit of that optimism left over from the bubble in the 80s. 
And mm-hmm. the industry was still very young, and companies like Square were still quite uh, small. Like a lot of game development studios hadn't been become fully corporatized, right? right? So you had an ideal situation where you had studios that had a fair amount of money, but also were willing to give their designers a fair amount of freedom. So it was that nice cross-section, I think, that gave rise to a game like Moon. Yes. We actually talked last episode, I think it was, or the episode before, rather, because you weren't there for the last episode, just about the the summer of adventure and all the weird, strange ideas Square Enix did at the time with, like, Chrono Cross and uh, Legend of Mana just subverting expectations all over the place. And that's just something that happened a lot back then. And it's the kind of environment Moon would spring from. And it was not made at Square. In fact, Kimura talks about, quote-unquote, escaping Square. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta get out of here. Instead, it was made at a studio called Love Delic, a Japanese video game developer founded in 1995 by Nishi. So, effectively, they were an indie RPG developer. Mm -hmm, Which was quite rare in those days. But I suppose, as you said... um, Developers were becoming a little more corporate gradually, especially as Final Fantasy VII made things explode. So I could see that kind of being the start of developers saying, I've got to get out of here and do my own thing. It was ultimately published by ASCII Entertainment. And the remake, or I suppose the port, updated port for the Nintendo Switch is by Onion Games, which is where a lot of uh, people like Kimura ultimately ended up. So let's talk about... The actual game itself. This is what Toby Fox said about uh, Moon back in 2017. Uh, And talking about its inspirations for Undertale, he said, It's a game, it's an adventure game where you enter the world of an RPG where a hero has caused havoc. The hero broke into people's houses and ransacked their cupboards without asking, killed innocent monsters without abandon, and left the world in disarray. You know, doing what a normal RPG hero does. So... The point of the game is to repair the damage the hero caused and increase your level. LV, which stands for love, by helping people instead of hurting them. Anyway, you can see how this inspired Undertale, even though I didn't play it. It's in Japanese. It definitely has the spore of Undertale all over it. Rather, Undertale has a spore of Moon all over it, especially the love thing, which works a little different in Undertale. Um, I think it's what you get for killing monsters, whereas in... Uh, moon, love is what you get when you help monsters, and you need that love because even though you don't go around killing things, you don't need to get stronger, you need to build up your stamina because if you run out of stamina when you're walking around, you die. I can relate to that. As for Kimura, he also loves Undertale. He said, we grew up with Japanese role-playing games, so naturally we started thinking about the heroes of role-playing games and their actions. They kill a lot of monsters and animals. Is this okay? This was the question that sparked the creation of the story. Uh, The opening bit which is called kind of fake moon where the kid is playing on an actual TV screen and an RPG that looks a lot like dragon quest is a lot of fun. It has, it's just packed with tons of references to classic square RPGs in particular. There's an airship and whatnot. It's good stuff. I really enjoy the, the fake moon that uh, opens the game up. Nadia. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, doesn't he kind of like hit a through the whole, like, a dialogue yes. and like what's going on so it's very much like that like that pro zd thing what, what's going on now but <laughs> yeah so that's actually... the dialogue which i was doing the other day when i was streaming super robot wars actually <laughs> it's just like 
This is where I admit that I don't actually care about the story. <laughs> Fast forward. But 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 cat, all the burning justice. What about the burning justice? They did spend a lot of time talking about burning justice in of my playthrough of Super Robot Wars. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. But the point is, the kid skips through the whole thing. So I guess when he enters this world, he really has no idea what's going on because he's suffering from his own consequences, deciding not to read it. When you're actually in the world, you see the little monsters, and you see see which look like basically the slime from Dragon Quest or whatever. Yes, there is like a monster that looks a lot like a slime from Dragon Quest, and also another monster that looks like a Draki, which both are very it's low a little level monsters. Guy, right? Yeah, little bad guys are called Drakis. Ah, and you see the hero like mercilessly killing them, and then you have to chase down their spirits and reunite them with their with their bodies. Yeah, and that way they can get taken away by a UFO. It's a strange game. And this is also interesting. There is an in-game clock in which residents kind of go about their business. They're doing their own thing. They have lives of their own, Nadia. They don't just stand around. They're not just there to be like, welcome to Corneria, welcome to Corneria, welcome to Corneria. They <laughs> have lives and ambitions and wants and dreams, and you help them out. And it's kind of like Majora's Mask in a way, yes. um, or maybe like Morrowind and that kind of thing, and you win love points by helping out the residents. And that was kind of neat, given that we were a few years at least, like three or four years away from having an in-game clock in, well, certainly in Majora's Mask. Yeah, I was just thinking about how um, there are only a few games that really, really use the day-night cycle to great effect. One of them is Majora's Mask. I guess another one is Moon. Uh, we did so Ocarina the next year. Yeah, yeah. But uh, surprisingly, uh, another game that used day-night really well, and the first one I remember ever playing to have that cycle, was Dragon Quest Three. <laughs> this was a game where uh, you could only encounter certain townspeople at night, you could only get into certain stores at night. One especially memorable sequence is there's a town that's extremely close to the Dark Lord Baramos's castle. And when you go in at night, sorry, when you go in during the day, it's dead. Like there's skeletons everywhere and it's just a, a really grim place. But you go in at night and suddenly there's people there and it's populated and it's lively. And you talk to these people. And you tell them, what's going on? You're dead. You're ghosts. And they're like, no, you're, no we're not. That is so offensive. How could you even suggest that? So basically, Baramos killed them so quickly and so suddenly, they have no idea they're dead. But you go back in the morning, and that's how you get a certain treasure, one of the orbs, I think, which is one of the main treasures of the game. So yeah, even though Moon does have that really innovative day-night cycle, and I'm sure it's more complex than Dragon Quest III's, Dragon Quest III did have something extremely novel for its time going on there. Pokemon Gold and Silver also had a day-night cycle that it used to pretty good effect. I, I think that a good day-night cycle can really elevate an RPG in its own way because it makes the world feel more alive. I agree. I was actually very, very impressed with the Gold and Silver's day-night cycle and the fact that you only catch like Hoot Hoot at night. Um, or they really did a good thing with the Eevee's uh, Umbreon and Espeon, uh, kind of the day-night theme going on there. I was really, really annoyed when uh, Ruby and Sapphire got rid of the day-night cycle. I mean, they had kind of a day-night cycle. It just wasn't explicitly shown. Yeah, it was just kind of eh. I, I really like a day-night cycle in my RPGs. And not only that, it had the days of the week, so certain uh, NPCs would show up on certain days. Yes, yes. it was. Uh, I, I really like it when they when day-night cycles put that effort into them, not just a matter of, oh, the sky is dark, the sky is light, the sky is dark. So when you first arrive in this world, you run into this old lady 
who thinks that you are her dead son and you're like uh okay (laughs) (laughs) i I will i will pretend to be your dead son uh it'll make you happy and this becomes your home and you can go that go back and rest um and you can't get too far from this home because you will run out of stamina and die Mm. which was an interesting addition i think and actually is cited by Kimura as one of the things maybe that he w- wouldn't have done in hindsight. <laughs> I guess they kind of wanted to give you some kind of handicap because this is not a game where you're going to come up against a monster and have to get stronger to beat it. So I guess he decided, well, I have to, have to make a character's level up and get stronger somehow. And so, yay, stamina. I think Kimura said something to the effect of, oh, I would definitely do things differently now, but also... I was a particular person at this time, and I had particular reasons for doing this, so I want to respect young Kimura. (laughs) I really like that. That's fine, you know. Yeah. Sometimes you look back on what you did like 10 years before, and you go, man, what was I thinking? That was so stupid. But you forget what the actual context was or what your thought process was at the time, and you only have the benefit of hindsight, so... Exactly. And so, And sometimes, like, you really are a different person. All of your cells are replaced over a certain amount of time, so you are literally a different person. That's kind of creepy, but you're right. But yes, I... God, just recently I was looking back at something I wrote when I was 23, and I was thinking... I, I could see myself getting better as a writer. I could see myself really grasping what it meant to make an environment lively and rich. But God, I was so bad at characterization and dialogue. I wanted to hit my head. But again, I was young. I uh, I thought I was fantastic. I was stupid. And I had a lot to learn. And I, I still have a lot to learn. But at least I think I got a good head on my shoulders now. <laughs> Here are some of the things you do in Moon. Uh, you'll be playing xylophone in an all-monkey band on a remote tropical island. Yeah, if I met a monkey, I'd want to play xylophones with it. You attend college classes at midnight with your good friend Yoshida the non-flying purple bird, doing a tribal (laughs) dance with the shadowy Kakunte people of the mushroom forest, bird watching, fishing, stalking a baker, assisting a waitress with her aspirations to become a pop idol. (laughs) I love it when an NPC wants to become a pop idol in some tiny little, like, environment, a tiny little town or something. Reminds me a bit of Valkyria Chronicles, one of the most popular characters in that game. Uh, was obsessed with becoming a pop idol. I guess it's just a, a Japanese thing, like an, an mm. RPG thing. Well, I mean, a lot of people want to become pop idols in America, too. That's true. I just never entered the appeal, I guess. Uh, sliding through the digestive system of a hungry ghost. And even helping an American family man overcome his writer's block and pen the comic book of his dreams. Wow, that sounds very Stephen King. <laughs> and it reminds me a little bit of Animal Crossing in its yes. own weird way. Except, I mean, I guess you don't actually get to help your villagers very much in Animal Crossing. but Or maybe Stardew Valley. You know, you have yeah. like a, a village of people who have their own things that they're doing. And you can do favors for them and give them gifts and help them out. Yeah, it sounds more akin to Stardew Valley. And uh, I don't know if you can build up relationships with the NPCs. Uh, I don't think you're marrying anyone like you do in Stardew Valley. But... Is def- both are definitely focused around helping people and giving them things when they need it. And a lot of the gameplay, it's like fairly simple. Like there's, you know, you're chasing around the ghosts or that kind of thing. Or you're, a lot of the time you're waiting. I think uh, Japanese fans called it the waiting RPG. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Uh, 
obviously we're going to have to wait now if we want to play the game, but nowadays it's like you just set it aside your Switch and go on your phone. You didn't have that in the 90s. Oh my god. Well, you know what I would do when I had to wait in the 90s, Nadia? Mm-hmm. Uh, like when I was dra- drawing spells in Final Fantasy VIII, I mm-hmm. would put it on memory and then just start hitting X to continuously draw spells. <laughs> and then I would change over to the TV and watch uh, TV while I continued to do it. Did you ever go back and find everyone dead? No, because usually I would be strong enough that the monster wouldn't actually be able to do much damage to me. Yeah, I guess back in the old days, we did have that option of flipping over to another channel or something. Yes. It wasn't entirely the Stone Age, so we still watched TV, so I guess that was kind of Stone Agey. <laughs> we did have TV. We used to watch these vacuum tubes. But now that we've like totally revealed our age, uh, let's continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, one of the coolest things that I like about this game, it has a non-linear soundtrack, Nadia, where you can build up a moon disc playlist of up to eight songs that you can uh, play to fit your mood. And they're across all different types of genres from various Japanese artists. There are like 30 songs, and there's like dance, pop, jazz, pop, jazz, electronica, new age, uh, classic Japanese music. It's really neat. That's actually an extremely interesting choice in a time when our JRPGs were known for their incredible soundtracks that always accompanied you everywhere. With Final Fantasy VI, Chrono Trigger, of course, by the time CD games came out, we had Final Fantasy VII, Symphony of the Night, which is an RPG, but the idea was people were so big on finally having CD capabilities for their music in games that you had these gorgeous orchestras just following you everywhere. But Moon decides, we're going with ambient sounds, and if you want the the soundtrack to be there with you by all means and you get to choose what you want to hear we're not going to sit here and manipulate your mood according to the soundtrack that's just a really interesting thing yeah especially when you talk about how important uh soundtracks were to jrpgs at that time when you think about it it is a pretty subversive choice to just have ambient sound and be like yeah decide whether or not you want to have a soundtrack it's up to you yeah otherwise you just kind of hear your footsteps and the birds and you're good um, the only other RPG at the time that I can think of that was really trying that was uh, Secret of Evermore, which was a Western-developed RPG, so that explains that. Yeah, Nobuo Uematsu plucking at your heartstrings and being elevated to, well, not godhood, but uh, quite held in quite high esteem. And meanwhile, Moon's like, yeah, we don't need music, it's fine. <laughs> Here's if some you music want. if you want it. You can have music if you want. <laughs> hey, kids, you hear about this thing called an MP3 player? It's good music, too. I, I listened to some of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I enjoy it. All right. So when we look back on the legacy of Moon, I feel like it reflects a very particular point in time when the games industry still had a bit of indie spirit to it, I want to say. It was still quite difficult to start a new business in Japan at the time, so they were taking a little bit of a risk uh, coming together to make their own studio, but it kind of worked out for them. Uh, Kimura in particular is known for being a bit of a pioneer or indies in Japan, because he went and started uh, Onion Games back in the day, which was one of the formative uh, indie developers in Japan. But So I guess my question is, a lot of people would say that there's quite a few anti-RPGs, quote-unquote, including Earthbound and Undertale. How does this compare to them in your mind? Um, Undertale is definitely the closest comparison for reasons that we have gone into but Undertale, the big difference there is that it gives the player 
uh, more a lot more choice in terms of what they want to do in term in the with the relationships that they form. You can absolutely play as a pacifist and make friends with the monsters, never hurt anyone. You can kind of play a neutral path, which has a whole bunch of endings that a whole bunch of potential endings. If you are really really cruel when you take the neutral path, which is possible, you get a really dark, sad ending. But otherwise, it's mostly hey, yeah, thanks for visiting us. Uh, you killed a couple guys, but n no big. Uh, and of course, you can have the genocide ending, which is just you slaughtering every monster you come across and the remaining heroes of the realm kind of banding together and trying to stop you. So all three paths, in my opinion, are very necessary if you want to get the entirety of Undertale's story. But the basic concept of collecting love from monsters and making friends with a whole bunch of wacky RPGs, uh, NPCs that are very different from each other, that's obviously very inspired by Moon. Earthbound is more of a distant comparison. I feel like Earthbound, even though it has that weird, whimsical sort of feel to it, characters in that game are not afraid to fight for what's right. Ness does not hold back. His, his, he does not stay his baseball bat if it comes to that. <laughs> so I feel like, even though I'm not saying that Earthbound promotes violence or anything like that, but it does kind of say, well... You know, sometimes adults are mean, they're cowards, Ness gets beaten up by a bunch of cops, so sometimes you got to clean house to make things better in the long run. And Moon isn't quite like that. Moon is very much, well, you can't attack the monsters. You can't uh, go against them and, and slay them all and see what happens. You have to sit there and try to be friends with them, which is fine. Again, it was a very original idea for its time. Undertale was an extension of that. Whereas Earthbound is definitely more of its own thing, with charming atmosphere aside. I think Moon reflects a growing sophistication and self-awareness in the console business in particular. Um, I think PCs were already a little bit ahead of consoles in that regard. But, you know, up until that point, consoles have been fairly immature, even though we would say that games like Chrono Trigger and Final Fantasy 3 kind of reflected the true golden age of RPG console RPGs. But Moon and to a lesser extent Final Fantasy 8 showed a desire to subvert what was already there and like take all these tropes and go, well, how can we do it differently? Uh, when I compare it to Final Fantasy 8, I go, well, Square had all the money and all the momentum in the world and what they do with it. They decided that they're going to get rid of magic points. <laughs> that they were going to completely change the way that you made money, that they were basically going to take a look at the RPG genre in general and try to change it as much as humanly possible, that they were going to make a love story sure between did. two characters. Like, they were taking a huge number of risks, and I think that both Moon and Final Fantasy VIII are emblematic of the spirit of the time, and I think that was kind of cool. Yeah, it was definitely a, a really... I mean, right now is a good time for indie RPGs and stuff. God knows there's more on the Switch than I can possibly play. But there was something extremely unique about the 90s era of indie quote-unquote RPGs and strange ideas. And it was exciting to see them all come into formation, even if not all of them hit the mark. I mean, we've talked about Final Fantasy VIII before, so <laughs> to me it was just like, I don't want to drive a car. And of course, Final Fantasy XV comes by and is like, yeah, I got a car. So, yeah, those, those were adventurous days. Compared to a lot of PlayStation RPGs, Moon holds up surprisingly well. I think that a lot of it is to do with the, the art. The, the art style is really pretty. So the actual 
art was by Kazuyuki Kurushima, who actually worked, interestingly enough, on the Tingle game. <laughs> Rosie Fresh Picked Land or whatever it Freshly was. Freshly Picked Rosie Tingle Rupee Land. I have to admit, the art for that game is hilarious. Like, it's just so much fun to look at, especially when, like, Tingle envisions himself as some buff dude. Anyway, so yeah, Moon is out now. It's available in English for the first time. You should go check it out. It has the Blood God's stamp of approval. All right, Nadia, let's continue on to the track of the week. Okay, Nadia, it's time for the track of the week, this segment in which we look back on a classic RPG track from out throughout history because music defines so much of our RPG experience, even in a game like Moon, where you can actually choose the music or choose not to have music. But this week's song is not from Moon. It is from a different game. It's carrying on through the theme of the Summer of Adventure. See if you recognize this song. Yes, this one is the main title theme from Threads of Fate, and it was submitted to us from a listener who said, I'm agreed on essentially everything you all said. Not a fan of Seiken Densetsu 3, but any talk of the Summer of Adventure always brings me to Threads of Fate, a game that was just good enough to be almost great, but not great enough to be memorable. With the exception of its absurdly catchy theme song, since trying it out on one of the classic Square demo discs, a bizarre constant earworm in my brain is that theme song. I ended up hurtling through a copy borrowed from a fellow Square Mega fan back in the 2000s, and I still have a lot of the affection for the game. So, Nadia, what did you think of the song? Uh, it was very RPG for <laughs> 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 When I watched that intro, because I did not play Threads of the Fate back in the day, but when I watched that intro, I noticed it was very interesting how we were talking about how most RPGs back then had, like, incredible cutscenes as introductions, Chrono Cross being another advent- summer adventure game as a, a prime example. This game had a cutscene that was all in-game polygons, and I'm not saying that was bad. It actually was really interesting, really kind of cute and fun just to see those really blocky character models with no expressions walking, running through dungeons and doing the whole dramatic anime thing. It was different, and the music was a good accompaniment to that very adventurous, very jaunty, uh, obviously kind of lays the foundation of what is kind of a, a, a fun, lighthearted action game. Yes, the intro is fairly repetitive, but again, yes, annoyingly catchy, very much an earworm, and I got it stuck in my head now, and it's the worst. <laughs> uh, shout out to demo discs. Those were, those were the days when you bought a game you did not care about to get the demo disc. And also the intro reminds me a bit of an anime opening, like an anime theme song. Very, 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 very. Definitely has that anime intro theme, 90s anime intro theme to it. Down to the part where the actual characters appear uh, together, just like one after another. And yeah. they do that in anime <laughs> openings a lot. They do that so much. They do that in so much in like 90s anime openings as well. Like, uh, God, even the opening for Mega Man X4 had them doing that. That was the last shot. Everyone, everyone Or kind Slayers. Of, 
Slayers. Flayers. Slayers is a big, big influence on so much anime and games in the day. Oh my god. Now that's a great theme song. Yes. Oh god, I haven't. You know what? I've never watched Slayers. I really have to. Oh, not it. You would love Slayers. I know I would love Slayers. It's, a it's so nineties. Bob Dragon loves that Slaying. one too. Both, Does he really? Both, oh yeah, Bob and I love Slayers. That, that's the that's the thread that binds us together. <laughs> that and only that, only just only Slayers. <laughs> uh, so yeah, this was composed by Junya Nakano, who is perhaps more famous for being the co composer of Final Fantasy X. Oh really? He, yeah. Uh, along with Nobuo Uematsu, who was very much on his way out from Final Fantasy at that point. Um, Nakano got his start composing MIDI music for the PC-9801 in 1985. Yeah, beautiful. Joined Konami in 1991, where he did music for various arcade games before being laid off in uh -huh. 1994. Uh, subsequently joined Square and became known for creating ambient music with percussive, timbral, and rhythmic elements. Started focusing on rhythm and timber at Square. Threads of Fate contains many different styles like ambient, jazz, and Spanish music. Um, on the subject of Oimatsu, he said, he is very youthful and active, but it hasn't influenced my work. <laughs> I was like, is he a lot older than Uematsu? And I think he was actually just saying, Uematsu is like 10 years my senior, but I wouldn't even know the difference is what I think he was saying. Yeah. Oh, man, that's good. A profile said of uh, Nakano said, he offered distinct soundtracks for the two scenarios of Threads of Fate, Sad but hopeful cues were used for the bereaved boy, Rue, while the spoiled princess, Mint, was depicted with humorous instrumentation. The score also included adventurous themes featuring exotic timbers and blistering battle themes dominated by dissonant harmonies and pounding percussion. So there you go. Threads of Fate, uh, kind of an underrated, underrated soundtrack, I would say. It sounds like it's just an underrated game, period. When I went to go check out the theme... Uh, there was just kind of people mourning about how Threads of Fate didn't get the due it was deserved. Thinking back on the Summer Adventure, I guess people don't mention Threads of Fate as much as they mention Chrono Cross and even Legends of Mana. It, it kind of seems like the middle child, and, and as a middle child, I can relate to being looked over. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you were a middle child. Oh yeah, middle child. I got a younger brother who's four years younger and an older brother who's two years older. I, I am the older child. Oh, it's, yeah, all the responsibility, ew. I don't know about all the responsibility, all the freedom for sure. Really? You know that oh, like yeah. firstborns always have the expectations loaded on them. My parents were still figuring things out with me once. Once they had once they had gone past me to my sister, like, no, you can't do that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> not only that, I'm the only girl in my family too. Oh no! Wow, two brothers. Yeah, but so like. My brother and I, we, we kind of grew up in the age of WWE, and we like would wrestle all the time and, and break shit. So there was that. It wasn't too bad. It's all coming into focus. Yeah, there's a everything you know about me, you can blame it on me being a middle child, only only girl, who was just never really a girl in the traditional sense. I am, as Popeye said, as I said earlier, I am who I am. My sister and I were both weird. My sister is weirder than me, believe it or not. So. <laughs> are your parents okay <laughs> uh no they're not okay <laughs> my parents are very normal so i don't think they know what to do with us um uh, my mother liked to start fist fights so i <laughs> didn't i didn't come from a normal background that's our track of the week if you enjoy the segment and you want to submit your own track send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net or drop me a line on twitter I accept it through DMs. Okay, let's continue on to the mailbag. 
Uh, last week, Nadia, we had on a special guest to talk about indie RPGs because I was out of town and I was you pretty were. good. Thanks for Davian Gooden for coming on the show to talk about She Dreams Elsewhere and other various interesting RPGs. And Bishia Ted was responding to Final Fantasy XIII because apparently that was the track of the week last week. I'm not sure that I am willing to count myself as a fan of FF13, but I am definitely a fan of the soundtrack. It just moves between such diverse places while anchoring itself with motifs while that still feels cohesive. Also, Sunleth Waterscape might actually be my most played song in the theater rhythm games. I just find it so relaxing to play. Did you ever play the theater rhythm games, Nadia? I do. Um, I have both of them. And they're actually, when they, when they previewed them, I remember people being really scornful of them because they came out at a time when Square Enix had no idea what they were doing. But then I actually played them. And they're very cute, very funny, a lot of fun. The music, of course, is fantastic. I'd like to get more into two. I have two, but I haven't played too much of it. And yes, Theater Rhythm actually gave me more of an appreciation for the music of, of the Final Fantasy games that I did not play. Like, uh, 13 is, a, is, again, a great example because, yes, I will say, even though I have no desire to play 13, there is nothing wrong with its soundtrack. It has it has some of the best Final Fantasy music, no problem to, to admit that. What was your most played song? I think probably the overall theme from Final Fantasy VI. It's just so perfect. Terra hmm. is what it's called. Mine was Battle on the Big Bridge. That is such a good song. I think I told you about the time I saw Distant Worlds sometime or another, and the composer said that, he was got the request for Battle on the Big Bridge all the time when he went to Japan, but it wasn't really part of their play role because it was put together in America, and they realized that Final Fantasy V did not have the same presence here as it did in Japan, so Japan loves that song, which is a great song, and yeah, I'm glad it finally crossed its way westward because it's so much fun. It also, Theater Rhythm also gave me an appreciation for the music of the NES games, particularly the original Final Fantasy. Uh, they're just really catchy. They are. Um, I love Matoya's Cave in particular, and I love that Final Fantasy XIV remix is that. I like the boss music. I, Garland, will knock you down. It's so, it's just so functional. It's so perfect for But it's so, like, catchy. Like, you just want to bob along to it while you're fighting. I need a yeah. good energetic battle theme when I'm playing an RPG because so much of it is menu-driven. You're right, and that definitely keeps you awake. You know, talking about Final Fantasy thirteen, it's worth noting that apparently Hamauzu retired from game music. Uh, it's Aww. not There isn't a source, but Dale North claims that it was some time back. Oh, well, enjoy your retirement, I guess. Yep, Thank I'm you. sad too, but congrats on, your, on being able to retire. Not many people can do that. I, I don't even think about retirement. It makes me depressed. Yeah, what a what a shame. But uh, interestingly, when we were talking about uh, the composer of Threads of Fate, Junya Nakano, uh, they worked a lot with Hamozu. Oh, interesting. Yes. Hmm. So, all right. I think that is about it for Acts of the Blood God this week. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, make sure to leave us a review over on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Podcatcher of your choice follow me on twitter at the underscore catbot check out my streaming channel on twitch at catbaileytv and follow nadia at nadia oxford we will be back next week as always at the same rpg time same rpg location and we will be talking about wasteland 3 and giving it a proper review we may even have a special guest 
look forward to that. But until then, for Nani myself, thanks for listening, and until next week, happy adventuring.